The following audio is from Christ Presbyterian Church in Nashville, Tennessee, where our mission is to follow Christ and His mission of loving people, places, and things to life. For more information about Christ Presbyterian Church, please visit ChristPres.org. Today's scripture reading is from 1 Kings chapter 19, verses 1 to 8. Ahab told Jezebel all that Elijah had done and how he had killed all the prophets with the sword. Then Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah saying, So may the gods do to me and more also if I do not make your life as the life of one of them by this time tomorrow. Then he was afraid and he arose and ran for his life and came to Beersheba, which belongs to Judah, and left his servant there. But he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness And came and sat down under a broom tree. And he asked that he might die, saying, It is enough. Now, O Lord, take away my life, for I am no better than my father's. And he lay down, and he slept under a broom tree. And behold, an angel touched him and said to him, Arise and eat. And he looked, and behold, there was at his head a cake baked on hot stones and a jar of water. And he ate and drank and lay down again. And the angel of the Lord came a second time again and touched him and said, Arise and eat, for the journey is too great for you. And he arose and ate and drank and went in the strength of that food 40 days and 40 nights to Horeb, the mount of God. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thanks, Kurt. Well, uh, good morning. My name is Stacy Croft, if I haven't met you. Uh, I'm the pastor here at Christ Pres Music Row. Welcome um, both in person and online. And um, I say this, and people don't really believe me when I do, but um, people are starting to catch on. That I'd love to get to know you, grab coffee with you, lunch with you, and um, get to know your story and help you plug further into the life of our church and what's going on here. Uh, we love it. And there, hopefully you met a bunch of people uh, even this morning as you're turning around that you can uh, meet, and hopefully those relationships will continue to grow, and even you can walk out these doors and grab lunch with that person you met this morning. I was actually talking to Parker, who, um, if you don't know Parker Bradway, who leads our music, does a fantastic job. He and his wife, Kelly, uh, just had their first, and uh, we were talking just a little bit about their first child, and uh, we were talking a little bit about that, and I was just asking him how he's doing. He's, I mean, I keep wondering when he's going to show that how tired he is. He hasn't really shown that yet. I'm kind of like, oh, he's hiding it pretty well. Uh, but uh, I remember uh, he was just telling me about, uh, he had the opportunity um, as Kelly uh, had to step out for a little bit, and he was taking care of their, uh, their newborn and uh, feeding their child. It gave me the recollection of when I was, we had Jake, our first, and uh, I was, Megan, my wife, was either at work or somewhere. I can't remember where it was, but I knew I was in charge. Uh, which, you know, that in my mind felt pretty weighty as I was taking care of uh, Jake. And uh, he was, you know, I was doing all the things, taking care of him, playing with him. He was just a little baby. And I remember him getting really upset, really, really upset. And I was trying to, okay, what do you need? Are you hungry? Well, here's food. Okay, what do you need? Are you tired? Let's go. And I try, you know, one of the things you just kind of I'm going to try every single thing, go through the checklist. And then I went through the checklist and nothing worked, literally. And I was like, I'm such a failure. And I was getting mad. I was mad at him. I was mad at me. I was mad at everything. I was like mad at my wife. Why did she leave? And I'm so terrible. You know, like all the things come into one. And then I realized um, as I'm trying to feed, I'm trying to repeat cycle, right? I go back, I take the bottle 
uh, that I'm feeding him with. And I realized as I pulled it away that nothing is coming out. And I unscrewed the top and it was clogged. That was it the whole time. Hours wasted. My sweet child, hungry and angry, but he couldn't communicate to me. And, you know, we just read a passage that really speaks to this. Spiritual drought. The moment where you for so long have gone back over and over, you've, you've gained res- refreshment and nourishment, and then all of a sudden, there's nothing. There's no nourishment. You feel dry. You feel despair. It starts leading you down that road of what's wrong, not only with me, with everything around me. And so you try different methods. You try different things. Maybe you think, I'm not going to church enough. Or maybe I need to read my Bible on a different new plan. Or maybe I need to, to pray differently. Or maybe I need to just step away. I don't know what's going on. You start shuffling the deck again because you wonder, where am I going to feel it? And you don't feel it. You don't experience it. And you ask the question, where am I going to get that nourishment again? Elijah is in that place. He has experienced insane amounts of, of pictures of God's power in sending fire down, in, in, in kindness and grace of sending rain to nourish just the, the ground itself, more or less the, all of Israel that's, that's needed. It's been a drought for two and a half years. And yet now he's in a place when he hits resistance and he feels for the first time, if you, the irony of all the rain that's nourishing the ground, his heart is in complete drought. And he's trying to figure out why. When you hit that, I wonder what it's like for you when you hit drought, when you hit spiritual drought. Uh, look, this morning I'm going to talk about depression and, and drought. And one of the things that I want you to know is, is this is not about me giving you a diagnosis of where you are. I'm a big believer in if you are in that place of depression and drought, that it's an all-encompassing thing. That's why we have good therapists. That's why we have good medicine. That's why we have community. But what I as a pastor want to address, and I think this passage along with many others in the Bible, is that A, depression is real and the Bible speaks to it. And B, the way I as a pastor want to speak to you about it is how do you receive nourishment for your soul and for your life in ways that only God can reach? And he provides us with other things for that. I realize that not everybody in this room may be in that place, but maybe you have been in that place and maybe you will be in that place. And this passage really shows us just like what James said in the New Testament when he writes a letter to James and he mentions Elijah and he says he was of nature just like us. He prayed and all these amazing things happened and yet he was in nature just like us. To remind us that this is a reality. You know, ancient Christians and church leaders used to call passages like this the dark night of the soul. What a great description. The dark night of the soul. And what they meant by that was when you were in a place where everything was stripped away, all the things that you once leaned on, and you would lose desire of spiritual disciplines, of luster, of value, as they said, and you are forced face to face with just God himself. Where is your soul in that? Where does it go? 
And so this passage is going to drive us to a couple things, to instruct our hearts. First, of what does it mean to really face that dark night of the soul? Whether you're in it now, whether you have or you will, what does it mean for us to really be instructed by Elijah's life, his relationship with the Lord about what does it mean to be in the dark night of the soul? And then secondly, what does it mean for us to receive the light of God's grace in that? What does it mean for us to receive the light? So dark night of the soul in the light of God's grace. You know, uh, it starts in this chapter, very different than chapter 18. Chapter 18, right before this in the Old Testament, if you're not used to the Old Testament, 1 Kings and 2 Kings, this is 1 Kings, it's actually one book. We put those little numbers on it. But it's one book, and that chapter right before this one is all about God's success through Elijah. Amazing success. In fact, uh, there, there are passages where First, God sets himself against the, the, the pro, uh, Elijah against the prophets of Baal, which was the little g-god worshipped in that area. And there was this huge contest, and two altars were set up, and one was just set up for Baal, and nothing happened. And the other one was God's altar that, that Elijah built back up because it was torn down, and God sends fire down and consumes everything, even the stones, and God shows his incredible power. The next minute, he, after that, he, the, the drought that's been there for two and a half years, Elijah goes to King Ahab, who's kind of fallen away. And when that was kind of part of parcel of the things that were going on in Israel at the time, the kingdom was divided. The kings in them were divided against even God. And here comes Elijah out of nowhere. <clears throat> and he says to Ahab, the king, he says, I'm going to pray and rain is coming. The Lord is going to bring rain. And he does. He brings rain and it's so much, it nourishes the ground. And you would think after all of this that the hearts turn. And there's where we begin in chapter 19. Ahab, the king, told Jezebel, his queen, all that Elijah had done and how he killed all the prophets with the sword. And then Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah saying, so may the gods do to me and more also if I do not make your life as one of them by this time tomorrow. And then he was afraid and he arose and ran for his life and came to Beersheba, which belongs to Judah, and left his servant there. All of a sudden, he hits pushback. Major, severe pushback. And he just can't deal with it. And it's interesting because this passage at first, you read that and you go, oh my gosh, he's scared for his life. <laughs> but there's actually something a lot deeper going on here. The word for fear here, that he was afraid, over and over, there's, there's kind of this split understanding of what that word means. Some say, oh, he was afraid, but why would he be afraid of this one queen after he hasn't been afraid at all? And then he runs and even gets to a place, and you see it in this passage where he even says, God, you can take my life. He's is he afraid of death? What is he afraid of? The word fear here is actually not translated for fear. It's actually translated saw, that he saw with his eyes that there was pushback. That all the great things that God has done met like this. And Jezebel said, I don't care. I'm going to kill you as she had done every other prophet of the Lord. You know, for some reason, I don't know about you, but sometimes I'll read passages and, and a song will pop in my head. And what popped in my head was James Taylor's Fire and Rain. I don't know if you know the song. 
I've seen fire and I've seen rain. Amazing song. One of the most classic songs there is. But, you know, I went back, it just popped in my head and I was kind of like, you know, I can't, I love that song. I was just thinking about Elijah. I've seen fire and I've seen rain. But, you know, listen real quick to the lyrics of the song. He says, oh, I've seen fire and I've seen rain. I've seen sunny days that I thought would never end. I've seen lonely times when I could not find a friend, but I always thought that I'd see you again. Won't you look down upon me, Jesus? You've got to help me make a stand. You've got to see me through another day. My body's aching and my time is at hand and I won't make it any other way. Oh, I've seen fire and I've seen rain. I've seen sunny days that I thought would never end, but I've seen lonely days when I could not find a friend, but I always thought that I'd see you again. When I read those lyrics, I thought, did James Taylor honestly take a page from this? Now, I know he probably didn't. He has so many other things going on in his life. Many artists write upon that. But do you hear his lyrics? That is such a beautiful description of Elijah. He has seen fire and he has seen rain. And he's seen sunny days that he thought would never end, but now he is one of the most lonely places he has ever been. Asking God to look down upon him. Why is he in that way? It's because not he's afraid for his life, but that he saw that everything came crashing down in failure. He saw that with all the work that God had done, yet there was nothing but pushback. He experienced, he was complete brokenness of seeing that no matter what, God sent this, fire and rain, but now he is all by himself again. One of the things that he actually cries out that's interesting in this passage, it's later on, we didn't read it. He says, God, I'm all alone now. They've killed everyone. And yet that's actually not true. There are other prophets, but yet that's where he is. He experiences the depth of isolation of experiencing brokenness and failure when things around him do that. And what is happening here is he's seeing how his success as a prophet, does it measure up to who he is before the eyes of God? Now, this is a really profound thing because one of the things he mentions here in verse four, he says, it is enough now, O Lord, take away my life, for I'm no better than my father's. He begins to externally compare himself to everyone who's gone before. And what's being stripped away from Elijah is the position of strength and power. It's not that God isn't powerful enough. We're seeing behind the curtain of Elijah's heart of where God wants to meet him, not in the fire, not in the rain, but does he equate his success with his relationship with God. One of the most profound things that I have read over the years is uh, when Tim Keller wrote a small article. He's a pastor in New York City uh, who's been battling with cancer actually recently and is, is, the Lord is providing him health again, which is amazing. He wrote, he said, one of the most dangerous places for our soul is in ministry, is in leadership positions is in the places where we're ministry activity feels like it equates a deep, profound relationship with God. And he hits this failure. And all of a sudden, all the things that he's doing tells him he's nobody. 
And I'll tell you what, if there's a philosophy that we believe in and are in the in just drinking water of our culture, it is our doing equals our being. That what we do equals who we are. And God is getting up underneath that in a way that is so incredible. And if you don't believe me, think about the ways that when you fail, how it comes up underneath you. What causes shame? You know, shame is the, is the place where you, you find yourself to be someone who's not worthy about who you are. Guilt is about what you do. Shame is that you say, I'm nobody. And all of us have hit something in our life, the failure, the, the coming up against of something that we find that if we fail at this, if we fall at this, it could be a relationship, it could be a job, it could be parenting, it could be anything. That when we hit that failure and you all of a sudden recognize in your life and you go, I don't know how worth anything I am in this moment. Then you know that you've put that doing equaling your being. And God is getting up underneath that. See, this is what leads him to the spiral. Notice he begins in here, it's not enough. Take away my life. I'm, I'm, I'm no better than anybody. He starts spiraling downward. There's a book that was written by a guy named Martin Lloyd-Jones. It's a great book called Spiritual Depression. It's kind of thick. There's a great book by an English uh, Christian theologian. And one of the things he talks about that we do often in our society, especially as Christians, is called over-dissection of the soul. I love how he says that. This over-dissection. It's that we over-dissect what's going on with us, trying to figure it out over and over. He says this, I suggest we cross the line from self-examination to introspection when, in a sense, we do nothing but examine ourselves. And when such self-examination becomes the main and chief end in our lives, it's that we so take our soul and we over-dissect some way we call this navel-gazing, but he takes it even further to say, it's not just that we're navel-gazing. We take it further to pour ourselves into, how can I over-dissect and create surgery on the triage of my own life? In the Psalms, there's a place where David says this, and I love he says this. He says, how long, O Lord, how long must I take counsel in my own soul? Psalm 13, one of the greatest psalms about what does it mean to not only be in depression or drought, not just for a short time, but a long period. How long must I take counsel in my own soul? You and I know that place where you find yourself in your own head, the tapes are rolling, and all you can hear are the phrases that accuse you and keep you in a place of drought. And also thinking, what can I do? What can I do to fix this? And we bury ourselves in it. Because we don't want to be a burden. We don't want to be needy. We don't want people to, to know maybe we're in this place. And then we start saying the things like, no one knows me here. And that's where it goes internal. Deeper and deeper. It affects worship. Think about what he says in verse 10 that's not on here. Listen to what Elijah says. He said, I have been very jealous for the Lord the God of hosts, for the people of Israel have forsaken the covenant, thrown down your altars, and killed your prophets with the sword. And I, even I, only am left. 
Notice where he goes with that. I'm jealous. I'm zealous for the Lord. What does this drought affect? It first affects your worship. It affects that relationship with the Lord. We start thinking we need to fix the problem. If we create a new program, a new plan, something to get to the, the places, a, a new church, a new music, a, a, new, a new thing that, that gets to the heart of where my zealous, and that's what, that's what Elijah's saying to us, is that he's zealous for the Lord, but he feels he's out of reach. He's, where do I connect? And isn't it, I think it's incredible how formulaic, I, I know I do this, so I'm not speaking about you, I'm speaking about me, that when I touch that drought, how formulaic I can get. And I can either fit a formula of, if I do these things, then maybe I'll have refreshment again. And it could be as simple as just the food and where it's coming from. Or we go to the place of, well, if I'm not feeling close to God, I'm not gonna try there. I'm just gonna put it off. And we push it aside. And we find ourselves in a room like this and people around us maybe singing or on their toes or raising their hands or, or seem more joyful. And it only creates more bitterness for us rather than more joy. Or we hear people talking about their relationship with the Lord and we go, oh, that's sweet. But inside, in our heads, we're going, I don't have time to hear about that. Yeah, I wish I could have that, but that's not where I am right now. That's great for you. In our head, we do that. We do the platitudes of that. But that's how it deepens into us. That's where Elijah is. He's seeing this and he says, I'm zealous for the Lord, but you're far. You're right there, but you're not close to me. And we do everything in our power to get him close. It affects our community. Do you notice he says, I am alone in this? You know, right after this passage, God sends a prophet, another prophet to Elijah to encourage him. So we actually know he's not alone. But what does he know? He feels the depth of his loneliness. If there's one thing that depression and spiritual drought does, it doesn't matter if you are surrounded by people. It says, I am alone. No one understands. No one can listen. Doesn't it? It isolates us. It forces us into that place. Look, there have been studies about how loneliness, even, I mean, I I would be so fascinated if all of us had a white blood count, you know, after COVID to see really how loneliness, because it really is something that neurologically affects us. It actually gets into your body's system. It's been studied. In fact, over the last decade, maybe more, maybe 15 years, just go back. Still, one of the most high epidemics that has been discussed in our country, even from those in the position of of power in the government, to say, it's not smoking, it's not obesity, it's loneliness. And we only hit that more when we hit COVID, didn't we? I mean, COVID didn't create it. It only made more of what we are. It only revealed more of what we needed. It affects community. So what does God do? God reaches into his life. He doesn't leave him there. I think it's amazing that God doesn't sit and wait. He sends. You know, when you first read this, 
how does the how does the darkness get penetrated? How does light really come in? Because we look everywhere. How does light really get to the deepest parts of us and to just the everyday of us? Because everyone in this room has a story. You know when I say I want to go sit with you and have coffee and I actually throw out I want to hear your story? You know why? Because the Lord has a story for all of us. And he's coming into your life, maybe similar, maybe dissimilar from mine. But I love the fact that God is so incredibly wise and powerful. He knows your story and knows where the darkness is the most. He knows the corners of your heart that need the light to come in. And you know, many read this and they think sometimes, okay, Elijah's panicking, but there's really a plan here. Think about this for a second. The number of miles, I know this sounds like geeky, like whatever, but like studying this passage, when you add up the mileage that Elijah went from the beginning of just these verses, one to nine is 300 miles. 300 miles. Now that's like Google map, 300 miles. That's not like walk on foot, doesn't have a wagon. And you know what I mean? Like you've probably done that on your Google maps or, or, or you know, ways where you accidentally hit the walking thing and it's the dotted line. You're like, why would I walk that far? That is ridiculous. Especially on a hot day like today. But that's all he had. So what we're looking at is not just what verses one through eight, just, oh, he's dealing with this difficult thing. Think about the days, weeks, and months of this. You don't even see the 40 days and 40 nights at the end of it, but you see it taking him all the way to Mount Horeb. And you know that, that the light has to be strong enough to break into that. So what does he send him? Look what it says in verse five. He first sends his messengers and he lay down, that is Elijah, and slept under a broom tree. And behold, an angel touched him and said to him, arise and eat. And he looked and behold, there was at his head a cake baked on hot stones and a jar of water. And he ate and drank and lay down again. And, a, and the angel of the Lord came again a second time. You know what it's doing? It's pitting against two messengers. Jezebel sends her messenger and God sends his because he wants us to see in this passage, who are we listening to? Who's speaking to us? You know, one of the biggest places that light comes into darkness is by God speaking. It begins in Genesis when creation comes and God speaks in creation. But you know what else he does when he speaks into our lives? When we're being made new, he speaks recreation into our hearts. And just here, simply put, in the desert, he brings a messenger over and over to speak and remind Elijah to listen. Who are you listening to? All of us have those tapes. I mentioned that a minute ago. All of us have the tapes of our past, our present, of what we think of ourselves. I was just talking to my wife this week and we were talking about guilt. And she was so wise telling me, just reminding me, Guilt is a liar. And yet I want to hear that tape. This is where it comes. And what does the angel do? What does God do when he speaks to us? He brings the truth of who we are in him. Remember, 
There are a couple things here. One is reminding us that he's in the desert. Other people have been in the desert like this before. One of those was Jesus himself. And who comes into the desert with Jesus? Who speaks to him? Maybe you might remember this at the beginning of the Gospels. Jesus is in the desert and Satan speaks to Jesus and presents to him all these ways of how you can take care of yourself. What you need. Here's where you really are. And it's really interesting if you think about what Satan is doing. He is masterful. Over and over, three times, different ways, he addresses Jesus and his needs, not just emotional needs, physical needs, all of his needs. He says, Here's, just take care of yourself. And Jesus pushed back over and over. Why? Because it is easy for us to say, what can bring me out of this despair? What voice is going to tell me the right fix to get out of this rather than pointing us to the right relationship that does? Because that's what really gets at the heart of the darkness. This is why the Lord doesn't send over and over just prophets. He also comes in himself in flesh to speak to that. Instead of over-examining ourselves, he comes to send his son to bring us freedom from that. And here's what's beautiful. He not only speaks to him, he teaches Elijah, and, and we see this in the Psalms quite a bit, to speak to ourselves. There is a weird uh, phrase that happens over and over in the Psalms, if you're unfamiliar with the Psalms, or kind of like the songs, the songbook of the Old Testament. It's a big one, like if you flip a Bible open, like, or in the half, it's usually right there. And one of the things that David does over and over is he starts talking to himself. He'll say, soul, why are you downcast? And you're kind of like, that's weird. Like, we all know that. I mean, we have air, AirPods, right? Like, we'll walk around, and if you don't see them, you see somebody talking, you're like, do they have AirPods in? Like, you kind of ask that question. There is a self-talk that the Lord puts into David's heart and says, don't let your soul run you. You run it. In fact, in Martin Lloyd-Jones' book, Spiritual Depression, one of these things he says, and he puts even an exclamation point on it for us to understand, he says, We must talk to ourselves instead of ourselves talking to us. See, what it means to be a Christian doesn't mean, that, and we do this often, is to let our emotion, let our, the tape or whatever externally tell us who we are. But who is the one that tells? What is our compass so that you can not only hear the messengers that come over and over from the Lord, but also to use the same language to speak to yourself. The same exact language that you and I need to hear. And here's what's beautiful. He doesn't just stop with speaking. He also gives him sustenance. He gives him food to sustain his body. Look, over and over, he says, take a rise and eat. I love that, I was saying this to somebody, I love that Parker when he picks our music, he does such a great job of taking the passage and thinking about what it means. When we sing that song, Arise, My Soul, Arise, guess where this is coming from? What, what does that song tell us? Arise, my soul, arise. Shake off your guilty fears and rise. What do you think the angels are trying to instruct him from that? 
arise and eat, is to eat, to give sustenance, to give food that God gives just everyday food for us. We have done such a job of dividing body and soul, faith and science, faith and reason. The, you know, the Bible never does that. The Bible says, what impacts your soul impacts your body. And what impacts your body impacts your soul. You know that there are plenty of other ways that we can talk about this that are not necessarily Christian views. I read a, a great article in The Atlantic that talked about this. Listen to the, even eating toward immortality. Listen to what they said. This is why arguments about diet get so vicious so quickly. You're not merely disputing facts. You're pitting your wild gamble to avoid death against someone else's. You are, po- listen to this, you are poking at their life raft. But if their diet proves to be the one true diet, it's capitalized. Yours must not be. If they are right, you are wrong. This is why diet culture seems so religious. People adhere to a diet, dietary faith in the hope they will be saved. That if they're good enough, pure enough in their eating, they can keep illness and mortality at bay. And the pursuit of life everlasting always requires a leap of faith. Wow. That tells us that we know far more that <clears throat> there's a division of our soul and body. There is this connection. And the Lord himself, why, why is it then? <laughs> when any of us are sick or in really great need, what is one of the first things that our church is so good at doing? And this is not me. This is you all. A meal train. You ever thought about that? One of the kindest, most loving things is when someone close to you says, we're starting a meal train, sign up. And there are like so many websites you can use for this now. But why, why does it hit us? Because it is such a basic need that shows how we're taken care of. That we're sustained. That the Lord cares, not just that you feel good spiritually, but that your body and soul are cared for, because what's going to be resurrected? Not just your soul, your body. Bringing meals points us beyond that, points us to the tangibility that sits even in front of us now. This table is a tangible table. It's one that shows us everything we've seen. And here's what's interesting about this passage. It ends using the language of 40 days and 40 nights. Now, maybe that sounds familiar to you. It's, it's actually phraseology that's used all throughout the Bible. <clears throat> but it's pointing to the fact that it says, 40 days and 40 nights to Horeb. Another name for Mount Horeb was actually Mount Sinai. See, the 300 miles that the Lord took Elijah to in his plan was to bring him back to where Moses met him, where the covenant began where the relationship was reminded, the place where God met his people to give them the Ten Commandments, but also to show them what kind of people they are and to remind them, what is this? What is this relationship that we have? See, the 40 days and 40 nights isn't just here. It's actually reminded even when we read about Jesus, when Satan speaks to Jesus, that it says he was in the desert for 40 days and 40 nights. Do you know why? Because 
Elijah, Moses, and all the characters after him. Why? Why is this repetition there, the parallels? Because it's all culminating in the only one who could meet the Lord in that desert and meet the temptations of the greatest loneliness he could and yet succeed on behalf of Elijah, on behalf of Moses, and on behalf of you. This table, you ever think about this? Is an external taste that God sustains you. It reminds your taste buds and your whole body that God cares about you. And yet he doesn't stop there. You have to take it in. And the way that this meal is effective is that he gives you his Holy Spirit. He takes this small morsel and goes deeper within you to the places where you find yourself to the greatest drought you've ever had and continues to flourish by his hand. There is no table like this. This is not my table. This isn't Christ Pres Music Row's table. This is Jesus' table. And it sustains you both outwardly and inwardly to carry you forward, to remind you that drought, even if you're in it in the moment, has been tasted and felt by God himself. He has taken his own medicine and felt it. That's why it's body and blood. So that you know that your Savior and your redemption goes well beyond your drought. Because one day, this table won't be small morsels. You will never, ever be without. You will be full always. Praise be to God. Let's stand together.